Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mr. Paul Fletcher, how are you okay? I am outstandingly well, thank you. Brilliant, and that's yep. great. Great to hear because you were outstandingly well in the 70s. And like all great stories of the 70s, they start in the 50s when you were born on the 13th of January, 1951, the same year as Alan Hudson and Tony Curry. So you're in good company there. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't have as much skill as those guys, but I'll be happy to be in that uh, that era. You might not have been blessed with the same kind of levels of skill, but you were a central striker, so you needed a different set of skills to play at that position as a number nine back in the 70s. But before you joined Burnley, you joined your hometown club, Bolton Wanderers, didn't you? And Jimmy McElroy gave you your, your, your Bolton debut? Um, yes what what happened was I was very fortunate as a kid because yep. I went to a school and I wasn't a great player uh, in the, my early days uh, but I got um, introduced to basketball okay. um, uh, so and I, I ended up playing for Lancashire at basketball and my timing because I was a smallish guy basketball you're playing against guys six foot six six foot eight and I was a smallish guy and I got my timing perfect and that came in really good uh, at uh, Bolton Wanderers when I was a young apprentice there and Nat Lofthouse took me to one side and he said you're pretty good at ending a ball you are I want to teach you the centre forwards role um, and when I was a 17-year-old, I ended up playing in the first team for Bolton Wanderers. So in the early days, it was it was Nat Lofthouse who took me under his wing, um, but and I was just gifted that I could that I could head a ball. Now, what a player! I mean, the line of Vienna to take you under his wing and teach you the art of being a centre forward—that must have been fantastic for a young kid like yourself. Yeah, well, it's good. You know, good good fortune comes along in your life, and yeah. you, you and I, I had the good fortune. The the, the my, my first manager was a guy called Bill Ridding. He'd been there at seventeen years as manager of Bolton Wanderers, and he gave me a free transfer. He gave me the sack. I'm on my way. My career's over with. And then a week before I had to leave the club, he got sacked himself after seventeen years, <laughs> and they made Nat Lofthouse manager. And that saw something in me, and uh, and and gave me the start of what I thought was a lovely career. Now Jimmy McElroy was there as well for a, for a short period of time, wasn't he? Very short period, only a, only a few months. Yeah. Um, and obviously he was a, a legend at uh, Burnley, but, I, but yeah. I didn't know anything about Burnley in those days. They were just a club over the hill from Bolton. Yeah. Um, I, but my career was all about Bolton Wanderers. I was a Bolton lad. I was a Bolton schoolboy. Uh, I, I went through the apprenticeship at Bolton, got in the first team. Um, I have no real history of Jimmy Mike, although what a lovely person he was. He was a lovely, lovely guy. Probably 
too nice to be a football manager. Now, Jimmy Adamson, as folklore as it, or, or whether there's any truth, because sometimes you can't believe what you research on Wikipedia, but he went to watch Sheffield United versus Bolton Wanderers, and they reckon they was having a look at John Tudor, but shortly after that, he signed you, so clearly he'd identified a young Paul Fletcher to be the marksman there at, at Burnley to play up front with Frank Casper. Is that correct? I'm told so, yes. Yeah, he said that, that he saw me against it. it. It was a game when they used to record the game and match of the day. They recorded it on Saturday and played it on Sunday. Uh, whether he watched television or whether he watched the uh, uh, the game live, I don't know. I had a particularly good game against Sheffield, Sheffield United. And... Um, uh, Frank Casper was probably struggling along because he was playing up front with Ralph Coates yep. and neither of them were, you know, they just got rid of a guy called Andy Lockhead who was a big, yep. tough Scottish centre forward um, and probably they needed to replace him. And I've been with Frank Casper this morning. He's still a very, very close friend and he always howls laughing when say when Jimmy Adamson said, we've got you a great header of the ball. He's, he starts uh, with Burnley next week. Just, just you wait and I walked into the dressing room five foot nine and a half and Casper almost said who the hell's this I expected somebody six foot six who could uh, but but luckily Frank and myself got into a great partnership and uh, and I think I held my own as a set forward at Burnley for 10 years and you were that good in the air the Burnley fans nicknamed you the Kestrel didn't they Yes, it, it, well, I only found that out afterwards, after I'd left. The, you know, it was strange. You find out these things. I didn't know you, that's what they, they call me. But, um, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, a nice little accolade. Um, and it was my pride and joy, really, because I used to enjoy playing against centre-halves who were about six foot six. Yep. Um, because I could always get up there first, and I found that if if you if you if you was the first to challenge for the ball, if they jumped up after you, they almost lifted you up and kept you up there. Um, so it was it was a happy time for me, um, and I, and I just loved playing alongside Frank Casper. And it was sixty thousand. It was a Burnley club record in nineteen seventy one in the March of nineteen seventy one. Now, what was what was your experience and your memories of meeting Bob Lord and talking through the transfer and what your wages were going to be? Because I remember watching a DVD many years ago when you was telling this story and I was rolling about laughing. Well, um, it was quite frightening, really, because you were told you were being transferred. So the way that it worked was um, Nat Loftus said, uh, be at the club at two o'clock and yeah. get your dad with you because we're selling you to another club. Yeah. And just to let you know, if you don't go, Bolt Wanderers are going bankrupt. <laughs> so there's no club, no point staying. So you have to go because we need the money from for it, that we're going to get from you. Um, and see you at two o'clock. didn't say which club it was, but he did say... Yeah. It's a great club. You'll love it. It's a great club. And I remember him saying those words. So we're going over there, we're going through Bake Up, and, and I'm thinking, well, and then, of course, he, on the way there, he says, it's Burnley Football Club, and there's a new manager there. The old manager, Harry Potts, is sort of retiring. Jimmy Adamson is the new manager, and, that, and that's who I met. So we're all talking quite quietly in the dressing room. And then who walks in? But this incredible figure of Bob Lloyd, the, the, the club chairman yeah. and he didn't even shake my hand he didn't even say hello or 
acknowledge my father, he walked up to me and he, he literally wagged his finger in front of my face and he said, you're on 80 quid a week, extra 50 quid if we win. If you don't score 20 goals a season, you're on your bike back to Bolton. Have you anything to say? And he was like, oh. <laughs> and, and as he said, have you anything to say? He took his earring aids out. He had two great big black earring aids and he put both his earring aids on my contract. <laughs> and he said, <coughs> he said, you've anything to say, I can hear bugger all. And that was it. So we all just stood there around the, the boardroom table. So I cheekily wrote my name on the contract without going any further. And I thought, you crafty. And I whispered under my breath, you crafty old bugger. But I was obviously pleased, pleased to sign for Burnley. And the next minute, Bob Lloyd, he's whipped my contract up. He wanted to get out. He was on his way somewhere. He put it in his inside jacket pocket. He picked up his old black ivory earring heads. He screwed them back in his ear. He picked up his cigar and he looked at me. He says, welcome to Burnley Football Club. If they want to do well, here, lad, take my advice. Score plenty of goals. Keep yourself out of bother. And never call the chairman a crafty old bugger again. <laughs> <laughs> that was my welcome to Burley Football Club. He turned around and walked out. Yeah. What other dealings did you have with Bob Lord? Because Bob Lord has to be one of the most charismatic football league chairmen. We had we had no other dealings with him. Um, really? The next time I remember him was he came into. Uh, if there's one good thing at Burnley Football Club, they took us on tour every year. And they took us to some great places. They took us to Barbados. They took us around the world. And they were a really good club for that. And we'd heard that Bob was having a big operation on his ears. So they said, <laughs> he, we, won't be, we can't fly anywhere again because he's had this operation on his ears. So all the lads are panicking as we get to the end of the season. And then he called us in to the first team. And, and typically, as he, once he would do, he would just walk in. And he said, uh, I've had trouble with my ears, so we won't be flying anywhere this year. Oh, well, oh, God. He said, but we are going on tour, and I'll leave Jimmy Adamson, the manager, to tell you all about it. Clicked his heels, walked out the dressing room. So we're thinking, what the hell's all this about? And Jim Anderson said, yeah, just to let you know, uh, um, we've got a three-week trip around the Caribbean on the QE2. And the chairman doesn't have to fly, so he thought it would be a good idea. And as, 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 he, as he said, it, it, you're going on a boat. And it was quite a bit more than a boat. It was the best ship in the world at, at that moment in time. So, you know, that was a great trip. Fantastic, um, and that one that was Bob Lloyd. And apart from that, I was there ten years, and I don't remember meeting him on on any other occasion. Wow. He kept himself very much to himself. He was a he, he was a dictator. He was he, he he was probably a narcissistic type type of a chairman. He built a a butcher's business in in Burnley, um, and he and he was a, a towards coming towards the end of his of his chairman role. Um, but thank God he was there when I when I joined. Wow. Now, wow. your first game was against Southampton, wasn't it, on the 6th of March? Yeah, yeah. What, what was your memories yeah. of that game? What was that like, lining up yeah. with, uh, with Burnley for the first time? Uh, well, the centre-half for Southampton that day was someone who I got to know really well at the end of my career on the after-dinner speaking circuit. And it was a, a really good centre-half called John McGrath. 
Okay. Uh, and John ended up living in Middleton, just outside um, uh, Manchester, and I got to know really well. We're off speaking together, uh, but he was he was a really physical guy. Um, he, he 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 sorted my nose out within the first fifteen minutes. He'd really smacked me one, and I I remember through my my debut for Burnley, I had blood pouring out of my nose most of the game. But in those days, it was a battle between the centre-half and the centre-forward. Yeah. And often, it was a fist fight. Yeah. And I stuck up to him. Um, and even though we lost the game, I held my own. Um, you know, he, he smacked me a couple of times and I think I elbowed him back. And that, that's what it was. And neither of us got booked, neither of us got sent off. It was a far more physical game than what we see on television these days. Who was the biggest battles or the, the, the player or the football clubs, teams that you had the biggest battles with in the 70s? Always Leeds United. Always. <laughs> because every every member of the Leeds United team, including the goalkeeper, were hatchet men. But, <laughs> uh, and Don Revy got this tied together. Yeah. But I'm not criticising them because every one of them was a great player. Yeah. So, the, you know, in those days, we, the, each club had, had one hitman. Man United had Nobby Styles. Um, wherever, wherever you went, Tommy, Tommy Smith at, at Liverpool, whatever you could, you could say, who's the hitman? You say, who's the hitman at Leeds United? You could, you could ro- roll off 11. They were, all, they were all physical. But of them all, without any shadow of a doubt, the dirtiest, most cynical, most awful tackler was Johnny Giles. Yes. And I covered this in a novel that I've just finished with uh, Alistair Campbell called Saturday Bloody Saturday. We did a novel, but we had real people in and this team had to go and play against Leeds United. So uh, I thought I'd better be careful because I'm writing things about Johnny Giles that's not very nice and saying what a hard man he was and what a cynical tattler he was. Um, so I rang him up to have a chat to say, Johnny, would you mind signing a disclaimer because I don't want you suing me of what I've written about you. He said, oh, no, to Paul. No, just send it over and I'll check it through. So I rang it up the following week and he said, uh, I wasn't like that. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> he said, no, I, no, I was I was a good player, but I wasn't that dirty. I said, Johnny, I've, I've, I've been very kind to you. You weren't, you weren't that dirty. You were 10 times dirtier. You were the most cynical, awful tattler I've, I've ever seen. But... We would have gladly had you in our team, yeah. as you would all the rest of the lead side. Everybody hated them for the physicality and the dirtiness that they had under under Revy. But of all of all of them, you would have, you wanted all of them in your team. He managed to put together a, a collection of hitmen who, who won. You know that the year we beat them four one at Ellen Road, they, they won the league. They they just not long come off um, Hoodie's mob at Stoke City because they were going for 30 un- unbeaten which was Burnley's record from 1921 and they were 2-0 up against Stoke City and Uddy got hold of John Mooney in the second half time and says look what we've got to do we've got to close down Bremner and Giles and, and they didn't and they won 3-2 yeah. then I think the week yeah. after yeah. they drew 1-1 uh, against Leicester City went to Anfield got beat 1-0 and then while we're, we're 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talking of Leeds and, and that game, 4-1 at Ellen Road and a young Paul Fletcher scored one of the greatest goals of the 70s. Yes, yes, so I'm told, and and it was I didn't have a good build up to the game because the following week we played in the semi final of the FA Cup, yeah. and on the Tuesday, on sorry, on the Thursday morning before the Leeds game, I woke up with a bit of a fever. I was sweating. I didn't feel well, so I went in. I didn't train on 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 Thursday, and on Friday I went to see Jimmy Adamson and said, "Boss, I said I just don't feel well about to play tomorrow." He said, "Oh, no problems at all." He said, "But if you don't play tomorrow, you don't." Play play next Saturday yes. in the semi-final of the FA Cup. So make your own mind up. So, you know, this was typical psychology of Jimmy Adamson. So I just had to play. So I, I remember not feeling well and feeling drowsy and sweaty and da-da-da. So, uh, and, and going out to, to play against this wonderful Leeds United side who hadn't been beaten at Ellen Road for about two centuries. So, you know, we, we, we went out there and they started to, 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 to kick us a bit. And I poked... I, I think it was one all. I put one in from about two yards, which was a simple goal. Then, then they scored uh, a header, which didn't go across the line. But in those days, there were no VAR and, and, and the, the linesman gave it. Uh, so it was one all. And then an opportunity uh, arose where the ball bounced up between myself and Norman Hunter. And I'd never done a scissors kick in my life. Right. And suddenly... I managed to throw myself up. Um, really, I thought either the ball or Norman Hunter's head will fly in the net. Uh, and I, I would have been quite happy to kick him in, in, in those days because he'd been chopping me down for all, all the first half. But I missed him and I kicked the ball and the ball f- absolutely flew in just as though I'd been practising it every week. And that, uh, that was the first and last overhead kick I ever did. And, you know, Burnley fans called it the goal of the decade and all, all, all these accolades, which was which I, I, I just accepted as though I'd uh, been practising it every week. Yeah, it definitely was one of the greatest goals, not just of the decade, but I think in British football it was a great goal. Now, I'm looking at... Just, just something to add to that. One yes, great thing about it is that it's on video. Yeah, I know. And the reason it's on video is because they were doing a, a, a documentary on yep. Don Reddy. It was nothing to do with Match of the Day or football. It was a documentary on Reddy. And they kept moving the camera towards Reddy and then the game, then the game. And luckily... As they've got it on Revit, on Revit, then they just turn to the left and they just video the whole of the, get, the goal. 
and then they go back to Don Revy, and I'm I'm just so pleased about it because if they hadn't have been there filming him that day, uh, you know, I, I would never have had the the. The, the adulation I got about that goal. And even to this day, I have people ringing me up saying, I was there on that day watching Burnley when you beat Leeds. There must have been about 170,000 people there that, uh, that day we played Leeds because everybody seems to have seen it. But um, no, it was a memorable time for me. And, and it's good to have a memorable goal in your career because, you know, a lot of strikers, you can play, uh, you can score 20 goals a season for... for 10 years and not have a really memorable goal so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm still to this day having people buying me a drink based on that goal I'm not surprised I've, I've <laughs> put it on my Facebook page and retweeted it etc on Twitter and, yeah. and so on um, and I, I think it was truly magnificent now the uh, the bit that you've got in the book uh, about Johnny Giles is it chapter 19 leads because I've I've got the book I haven't read it yet but I'm going to have a, a bloody good read of Saturday bloody Saturday it's um it's what kind of book is it just briefly in a, in a sentence describe your book with Alistair Campbell and how did you get the the two of you together to write the book and what was the dynamics did you write half did Alistair write half how did how did that partnership form I always had this this lovely tale in my head that I'll tell you about in a second yeah but how, how, how it really formed and if, if there's any players of my age in the mid-60s now who were playing in that era, they will know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. In the dressing rooms, unlike now where there's many foreign players, many can't speak English, uh, they drag them in from all around the world, where in the 70s, generally, there was two or three Welsh lads, two or three Irish, a couple of Scots, and the rest were English. So the banter in the dressing room was unbelievable because we all took the mickey out of each other and we all understood that. And we had this camaraderie. But within the dressing room, every dressing room had the same characters. You had one who was tight with his money. You had one who thought he was God's gift to women. You had one who was the, the dresser and he had all the fashionable clothes on. You had one who was a scruff bag. You had one who was a gambler. You had all these characters in the dressing room. And then when you got transferred to another club, the same characters were in the dressing room. It just seemed to be all over, all over. You know, one would be always late, never turn up for training, blah, blah, blah. Another one was a great trainer. Another, da, da, da. So he had all these fantastic characters. And I, I thought it would be good to write about all these different characters who were in a dressing room in the 70s. Um, and, and it was all based on, I read, I, or someone told me a um, number of years ago about a referee, a true story about a referee in those days, who, when he refereed in London, after he'd booked into his hotel room, he had a key cut to that hotel room. And then the next time he was in the hotel, that hotel, he raided the room. And he stole everything out of that room Jeez. because there were keys in those days. And what, what, what he did was strange, really, because it wasn't, um, how can I say, it wasn't unlawful. It was an illness that he had. And it's called kleptomania. Yeah. And kleptomaniacs, they just steal for the, for the thrill of stealing. They don't steal for the benefit. He never, and generally, a kept kleptomaniac will will keep all the stuff just as treasures or or trophies uh, from what they've accumulated over the years. And, and I, I think it took them about eight years to 
to, to pinpoint all the times that there'd been a theft out of a room and uh, I'd have been a theft by this particular referee who coincidentally stayed at a hotel every time there was a, ref a, a theft in that room. So it was an illness that this referee had. But just imagine for eight years a referee going down uh, to, 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 to London or wherever he was going and, and having a, a key that he'd been there in the room the previous time and, and stood and stealing everything. So we came up with this story, I came up with this story, which I suggested to Alistair Campbell. It was a difficult time to play football in London in the early 70s because the IRA were bombing everywhere. Yeah. And, it, you know, my wife used to say, be careful when we're in London at weekend. Uh, don't go into football grounds and don't go into hotels and don't get on the coach because the IRA are bombing everything. How, how could you avoid it all? <laughs> um, so... <laughs> So the the story goes in in Saturday Bloody Saturdays the IRA are bombing um, bombing London and they happen to 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 lay a bomb in a place where uh, um, a top football team is staying that night. So that's the that's the start of the story, and the the uh, the coach driver is a kleptomaniac. He steals things out of rooms. So that, that's how we... Now, I, I knew that if, if I were to put my name on it, uh, Saturday, Bloody Saturday by Paul Fletcher, I'd probably sell four copies. Yes. So I I asked Alistair if he would do two things. One, if he would um, uh, put his name to it and go through it all and double-check that I hadn't done anything that would upset the IRA. Because, you know, let's be honest here, what do I know about writing about the RARA apart from they did all the, this bombing? And I didn't want to offend anyone. Yeah. So the way we put the story together and, uh, you know, and Alistair with his contacts and he was part of the, the peace process. Um, Alistair um, uh, managed to get it overseen um, by some, some IRA characters to say, have we got this story correct? And they um, they approved it, and and if not, this is the address of Paul Fletcher. <laughs> and yes, and you know, just pop your head down the door and, and put a couple. Of, and yeah, I won't say what they could have done. So uh, yeah, but but you know, you've got to be careful in situations yes. like that. So yeah. it, I, I, you know, I wanted to be very careful. I didn't want to offend Johnny Giles. Yeah. I didn't want to offend uh, Ron Harris, who once again was a, a lovely, lovely uh, gentleman, was Ron Harris. And, you know, the fact that he was the biggest assassin London's probably ever had and the dirtiest, filthiest, most horrible footballer who I wish was in our team, as you always did. I just, I was careful that I didn't offend those and I was even more careful that I didn't offend the IRA. Now, so, when, so, buy the book, tell people to buy the book and, and read about it themselves. Now, when you say Chopper Harris, uh, the, the, the great and the late Peter Osgood, God bless him, Os always used to yeah. say, the late Chopper Harris, um, you yeah. know, he, he's not passed away. He's not passed away, just late, yeah. <laughs> just but, always late. But, it, but it, you know, it's funny, it was a different era. Yes. And you could get away with things like yeah, that. Could. Because if the referee didn't see it, strangely enough, if the referee didn't see it and the linesman didn't see it, it wasn't a foul. Yeah. You, you know, you could almost put a knife in somebody's back and if nobody saw it, it wasn't a foul. Now, there's cameras all around the ground. We've got VAR. We've got analysis. We've got all this rosmata. I don't know if it's helping the game myself because the physical side of the game I used to enjoy. Yeah. And 
each club had a hitman. You know, we've just gone through all, all the hitmen. They're all, all, all through the club. And I don't. If you, if I were to say to you now, who's the hitman in the Liverpool team? I don't no. think I don't think there are any in, in British the, football these days. Football, who's no. the Man United? Used to be Nobby Styles. Yeah. Who is the hitman now? Because it's it's a more of a gentle game. Yeah. I don't know if it's if it's as more is it's enjoyable a game, because if you're a if you're a steel worker or a or a coal miner or working in engineering and you've had a hard week at work, I don't think you want to see ballerinas run around football field. You far prefer a couple of guys kicking lumps out of each other. People like to see a boxing match. Um, and we had them in, in, in the 70s. So it was a different era of football. Um, whether, whether it's better or worse, I have to be careful, because otherwise I just sound like an old fart. Oh, no, sorry, I think that, no, I, I, no, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I thought and I still believe that the 70s was the greatest. Uh, we had the greatest footballers. We had the greatest game. I think when you look at the, the British teams in Europe, we pretty much dominated. The only thing that we didn't do is, is on the international field, we didn't dominate. But then, you know, we probably didn't pick the players that could get us over the line and, and yeah, win major yeah. honours. What was your favourite football ground of the 70s? Because the pitches that you played on back then at times were awful, wasn't they? They were almost like paddy fields. Well, they, well, they they were because they, they they didn't understand the drain. You know, I've been building stadiums for the last twenty five years. I understand drainage now, and I understand the importance of grass. And I understand if you point the the pitch in in north, you get maximum sunlight on the pit and all this. We didn't know that in those days. Yeah. Um, but what I do remember is an eight year old kid. My first match when my my granddad took me to Burning Park. Nat Lofthouse was playing that day. But but I, I I remember my grand somebody saying to my granddad. There was a, as, you, as you all walked to the ground because it was about a mile away everybody walked and they ended up with about 16 people and all these men were all talking about what they wanted to see that afternoon and it was Bolton playing Blackpool and I remember somebody saying I hope Banksy that's Bolton Wanderers fullback Tommy Banks I hope Banksy puts Matthews on track today right so these guys were going to watch a game and the highlight for them was could Tommy Banks put Stanley Matthews on the track? Now the track wasn't. It not only did it run round two meters off over across the line, but it was a meter down. It was it was like in a like a in a, in a, a big half a tunnel. It was miles away from the ground. Now for Tommy Banks to slide in and smack Matthews and the two of them to end on the track, this would be about three and a half yards away from the touchline. Yeah. And you know what? Nobody got booted. Yeah. Nobody got sent off. The referee had come over and said, don't do that again, Tommy. And, that, <laughs> and Stanley Matthews played till he was nearly 50 years old. Yeah, did, so yeah. It didn't do him any harm. Yeah. So, you know, are we, are, are, are we going a little bit too far to stop this physicality that people love to see are we, are we going too far and turning, as I've just said, are we turning these hard men into ballerinas? I don't know. Yeah, I think you're probably right. If you could return to one season during your playing career, what season yeah. would it be? I'm, I'm kind of guessing it wasn't 1974 because you played an unbelievable amount of games that season. Uh, well, it was the season that we got promotion. I think it was it 72? 
three four season we we got uh, no no it was earlier than that it I was uh, it was seventy two two th- to listen to the rest of this podcast please go to www.patreon.com forward slash srb media or just follow the links in the description thank you when you make decisions for your company you look for the no brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps dot com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.